0: everyone. This is Amanda Borchel-Dan. And I'm Jessica Steinberg. Your host
1: for Times Will Tell. A weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. Hey, Times Will Tell listeners, it's Jessica Steinberg. And I'm here today with Adina Sussman, a chef, cookbook author, author of Sababa and the upcoming Shabbat. And we are on site at Camp Ramah in the Poconos in... The Hills of Pennsylvania, where Edina has just finished a week-long culinary workshop, cooking and teaching to campers and staff members, working out of Sababa, of course, cooking her Israeli treats, teaching about the wonders of t'china and hummus and pita and roasted cherry tomatoes, and all kinds of other things. And we're going to take a few minutes of uh, the opportunity to speak with Adina and hear what she's got to say. Hello, Adina. Hi, thanks for having me. Nice to see you. Nice to be with you. You're finishing your upcoming book, Shabbat. I imagine you're really putting the final, the pieces together on that. And now that Shabbat has been out for how many years? Almost three almost three, to wondrous reviews and very happy home cooks and all kinds of chefs and all kinds of culinary people the world over. You've obviously gained a lot of knowledge about what it means to put together your own book and what people are looking for. What are some of the takeaways as you move into this second book and as it really gets ready for publication?
2: Um, something that's interesting to me being uh, in the United States and working with kids and also doing staff events here um, with the Israeli culinary curriculum that I created for camp is that it, although Israeli cooking and Israeli food are extremely popular, there's people still have so much to learn. And there's so much that people can add to their home cooking repertoires Um making pita, for instance. Most of the people here in camp had not actually ever made pita at home. And it was really fun, actually, for me to run through my Israeli recipes that I interpreted for American audiences here in America and actually working with my own recipes and even discovering small tweaks that I wanted to make to the recipe in Sababa and understanding how challenging it is for a home cook to follow a recipe in a cookbook because for instance in camp it's extremely humid so each dough recipe for pita which we made in multiple batches came out a little different so sometimes we had a little more water sometimes we had to add a little more flour sometimes we had to let it rise a little less or a little bit more based upon the weather and so i really had the chance to put myself into the shoes of someone who cooking from my book in the United States, which is something I don't generally get to experience because I actually live in Israel.
1: Right. I saw multiple batches of, well, huge amounts of pita dough, you know, and as you would unfold it and, and and let it sort of pour onto the table and everyone would be like, wow, this is amazing, Adina! so much pita dough. But right, every time it was slightly different. And then I thought it was really interesting, the whole tchina, tahini conversation that happened each time.
2: Yeah, it really was. Um, I think in Israel, t'china is second nature. In the United States, it's becoming that way. But just explaining to people the process of how it was made, people were so interested in where sesame seeds come from, which is Ethiopia that most people don't know, and how it's made in Israel and how actually the manufacturing and selling of tahina is an example of cultural and culinary coexistence between the Arabs and Jews that happens every day. Um, also talking about the chemistry of tahini paste and how, it's very similar to chocolate in its makeup and that it's thousands of tiny molecules that drink up liquids. So when you add a little water, it kind of seizes up and gets really hard. You have to keep working with it. People were sort of watching with bated breath to see what was going to happen when I was whipping giant bowls of tahina to put into our hummus masabacha, our chunky hummus that we were making. So it was just really fun to, to see See my recipes through the eyes of local people, and also a lot of Israelis in camp. So it was fun to bring them a taste of home here, and also was surprised to discover how many of them didn't know that much about the essentials of these things that they eat every day back at home. It was like an
1: experiment every time you were making the trina
2: and pouring the
1: ice water in and then adding all the lemon juice. And they were all like, I don't know, maybe you shouldn't add so much. But this was also interesting. I mean, if we're at a camp, and of course, you know, it's United States of America, so many things are really, very available. But you spoke a lot about the Trina that you were that is is the Trina of choice for you and for many Israelis. And I was sort of, you know, I was looking at the package and thinking, it is just kind of crazy that we could get this here
2: and up here in the Pocono Mountains. Sure. Thanks to companies like Zoom Tahini, um, who were real forerunners in um, exporting top quality tahina from Israel to the United States, and now companies like Al Arz and uh, Har Bracha. Uh, A lot of Israelis were really excited to hear that their favorite brand from home was here in camp. Um, It really does sort of speak to how the availability of these ingredients has changed and become easier for people to access over time. But also, we talked a lot about how you might not be able to find everything. So for instance, I wanted to work with pomegranate molasses this week. And it was a little bit hard to source. So we just brought in um, bottles of pure pomegranate juice and reduced it ourselves on the stovetop into a delicious syrup that I believe you tasted.
1: Yes, it was delicious. And then one of the culinary people here then puts them into ice cream that he was making.
2: Right. So it's, again, reinforcing this idea that the building blocks of the Israeli kitchen can be made by anyone in their home kitchen. And we also built giant jars of preserved lemons as a sort of a community project. It was really fun to see each kid learn how to make a preserved lemon and stuff it with salt and wedge it into an oversized jar that is uh, softening and self-preserving as we speak. Yeah. So, you know, I think I take for granted sometimes how much people know or are aware of these ingredients because they're so second nature to me at this point. And I think it's just a good general lesson about cooking and culinary pursuits is that you always have to approach everything from a place of humility and a place of learning and also assuming that people don't know. You know I think some people are intimidated by cooking because people approach them assuming that they're experience level or knowledge level or access to ingredients is, is higher than it is. So it's always great to give everyone sort of a shared entry point so that everyone can start from the same place and end at the same place.
0: The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. get the Technion booklet of wonders at ats.org slash wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society, world-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you.
1: Hi, Times Will Tell listeners. We're glad you're with us for Times Will Tell, our weekly Times of Israel podcast. You should also check out our daily briefing, the 15-minute podcast dropped every Sunday through Thursday, in which we speak to our fellow Times of Israel reporters and correspondents covering the very latest news and headlines. You can subscribe to the daily briefing wherever you find your podcasts. You also spoke a little bit about what that meant in terms of your upcoming book about Shabbat and how you had people test recipes, which I thought was a really interesting little anecdote about your cookbook authoring process.
2: Actually, as coincidence would have it, I received an email this morning from the tester who is testing the hummus Masabacha recipe for the upcoming book. And he is not Jewish and has does not have a lot of Institutional knowledge of either eating or cooking these dishes, and he wrote me that it seemed a little bit loose. And what texture should he be looking for? And you know, it's again an and it's sort of a a good lesson in my innate bias. Like I know the texture, and that's why I have these recipes sent out to people because. I now know that I need to go back and do a better job at guiding my home cook into how this recipe should look. What should the texture be? How should the viscosity read to the home cook? How thick should it be? How thin should it be? How warm should it be? All those things that are so important to a home cook. So, you know, sending the recipes out to people who don't have – a lifetime of experience eating them is super important and it makes sure that everyone who's making this recipe, whether they've ever had it or not, will have success and will just become one with with the recipe.
1: Right. We were talking about this last night as you were going through this second culinary workshop that some people they they look at the cookbook and they say, okay, I'm thinking about getting I'm thinking about getting sababa. How many ingredients are in a recipe? Uh, am I going to be able to do this? Mm-hmm. Is this going to be overwhelming for me? And of course, you're you're sort of thinking about where each person comes from. You don't necessarily know how each home cook approaches this. And sababa and shabbat are really geared toward the home cook,
2: right? They are. I mean, I think you know. I consider Sababa to be a very streamlined and simple uh, book, although it does have ingredients that can sometimes be hard to source. And yes, some of the ingredients are take to either time or uh, extensive labor to produce. Uh, last night, somebody who was looking through the book said that the recipes were too complicated for her personal taste, and you know that's okay as well. Um, with my Shabbat book, it was definitely a challenge. I'm writing a book about um, the Sabbath and how I cook on weekends in Israel and also bringing in um, dishes from different uh, immigrant groups and ethnicities that have contributed to the Israeli weekend cooking canon. And some of them are, listen, you got to make the dough, you got to make the meat filling, you got to stuff it, you got to cook it, you know, that's, sometimes the joy of cooking is the meditative process of, of of filling and rolling and seasoning and cooking and simmering and waiting so you know it's a fine balance between you know the experience of Quick and easy, and the payoff of sort of uh, invested labor. So I'm always kind of trying to play like sort of in between those two areas. And it's sort of with my new book Shabbat, I tried to make sure that for every recipe that was a little more involved, there was a simple recipe that was sort of a correction, or as we say in Hebrew, a chavaya mitakemet. Ah, that's interesting. So that's a a new
1: that's sort of a, a switch from Sababa in terms of your approach.
2: Yeah, you know, I also talk about the. I don't want to get too much into the book because it's a little bit far out, but, you know, um, in its release, but, you know, every book has a different personality and every book reflects my personality and where I am in my own cooking journey in my life at that point. And during COVID, I found a lot of comfort in spending time in the kitchen and, and, investing time and and learning and i wanted to impart what i learned to my audience and my readers and you know they trust me that if i'm putting something in my book that it's something that's going to be worthwhile for them and i also tried to include a story um, and some context that's going to also lend some some texture and depth to the recipe. So you know, it's a recipe is so much more than the ingredients and the technique. It, it, there's so many different aspects that make a recipe compelling to people, or successful, or interesting, or doable. You know,
1: right? I mean, what's always kind of fun on your Instagram feed is art, it's the constant stream of people who are making one of the recipes and they're excited about how it came out and you're excited that they made it. And I'm wondering as you, you know, now they're several years down the road from Sababa, when you think back to it, what are the recipes that really just became the stalwart, the, you know, sort of the iconic recipes of the book that you didn't necessarily expect? Like I always think of the melted cabbage, which is now just something I make so regularly. But what are the ones that surprised you?
2: I would say the tahini blondies, you know, to me, um, sort of a a Middle Eastern take on a a standard American dessert recipe. Um, Watching people, oh gosh, there are so many that surprised me. The orange soup, Ah. the maracotome, you know, something that I think a lot of Americans were not familiar with, just sort of as a concept, just taking all the different orange root vegetables Mine is, uh, you know, made with a coconut milk base and has like a crunchy nut topping. Um, my coleslaw that has a cumin dressing um, and pomegranate and apple is also something that just I'm always surprised to see how many how many different people are making that. Um, a lot of people make my challah recipe. Um, you know, challah has been made for centuries, thousands of years. um, And yet, you know, you can always add something new and different. Mine has olive oil and honey. Although in my new book, I have a whole different take on challah, which is actually less Israeli and much more sort of Proustian and sentimental to me. And we can talk about that another time. But, um, you know, for me, a cookbook is as much an emotional journey as it is a cooking journey. So, you know, seeing people... Um, making you know the harissa honey chicken from Sababa a lot, the schnitzel, you know, I mean those maybe are a little more expected, but also seeing like tens of thousands of people make schug, you know, <laughs> Yemenite hot sauce and and have that be um, a staple in their in the in the side shelf of their refrigerator has just been really gratifying. Right, I think this week someone that we spoke with. She was telling a kid was telling
1: you how much the schnitzel. Ah, yes, a uh, a teenager from Toronto was telling you how your schnitzel when she when her mother makes it, it's just really one of her faves. So I was curious, which brought me to think about uh, working with teenagers, which you've certainly worked with family groups, and I imagine teenagers have come through your kitchen. But what was it like working with teens on your recipes? Because we, as the as we were. Approaching this uh, this week here, the question always was: Are the kids going to eat labneh? Are the kids going to eat roasted cherry tomatoes? How are they going to react to all of this?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I asked them to come in with an open mind, and you know, kids are incredibly sophisticated now. They're exposed to so much media, um, so you know, they knew about a lot of the foods. Everyone was willing to try everything, and what I found really interesting was. I tried to make all of my lessons very participatory, but when I found the kids were most engaged was when I was demonstrating something that was technique-driven and, you know, chattering teenagers all of a sudden became silent and just were watching for like 10, 15 minutes without a peep in the room when I was standing up front showing them how to cut something properly, uh, how to make the trina, showing them the process, you know, and it made me realize that it's never too young to teach people the process. And, you know, I think that's where, um, you know, TikTok recipes might fall short, you know, um, that's why a cookbook really gives you the time and space to commune with a recipe and, and learn the proper technique. So I was really uh, interested in how interested the kids were about, the proper way to make something and and sort of l- l- going deeper on a recipe.
1: Right. And of course, it's camp. So even though they get three meals a day and many snacks, they're always happy to come to this room, the mitbachon, the little kitchen at camp. And what, Adina, what are you making? Is there anything that we can eat?
2: Yeah, a lot of kids, you know, camp food is repetitive, doesn't matter what camp you go to. And I think just having that hit of fresh lemon juice or the tang of strained yogurt or the tartness of pomegranate molasses or the richness of freshly made warm hummus or like, a, or, you know, steam coming out of a pita, like it sort of brings them a taste of, you know, something very homey and nurturing and also just very different from the standard American palate, which is typically served in camp, um, even a Jewish camp. So um, it was fun to see them react so excitedly to, to eating this food and to making the food and also to want to go home and make it for their families.
1: Right, completely. And was something else that I was thinking about. Last night, we had this staff event where a lot of the Israeli staff, there's 40 Israeli staff members here at the camp who are shlichim, who are emissaries of a sort, who work at the camp for the whole summer. And they came en masse to this event yes. and were on one hand, very, very excited to just be able to eat foods that they haven't eaten for the last, I don't know, five, six weeks. But they were also just very curious in a sense about, okay, there's this American, there's she's a chef, we know her, some of us don't know who she is. what What can she tell us about the food that we've been eating our
2: entire lives? Right. I mean, I think that is the issue of, you know, being a bit of an outsider in a culinary culture is an advantage. So, you know, I step back and look at Tahina differently than they do because you know tahina is like their mayonnaise, (laughs) essentially. So, do Americans think about mayonnaise that much? Not really. We just buy it and we use it, you know. But if someone was coming from another culture where they had never experienced it before, they might, you know, poke around a little bit more to get a little more uh, context, um, a little more insight into it, Um, and you know. I try to present, you know, if I'm working with an Israeli group or, you know, I would never try and presume that I know more than they do. Um, so I brought them into the the conversation and brought up volunteers to taste what I was making to add their insight into whether it needed more lemon, more salt, more tahina, you know, when we're talking about the, the whipped tahina that we made or the hummus. So, you know, I think there's always a way to... Um, to teach without sort of being pedantic and heavy handed and sort of acting like I know best, you know, so my style of cooking in general is consensus building and, and dialectical. So like everyone has something to add to the conversation. Everyone has something to teach me. And like, that's what I love the most about my job is that every day is learning experience for me. So now you're, you're heading back home, back to your kitchen, where I'll probably be craving, like, pizza and hamburgers.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. We've actually had another very funny part of the experience, which I'll just mention, is uh, here in the... The Pocono Mountains in a little town called Lake Como or Lakewood where there are dozens of camps. There's actually this little downtown. It's really not a downtown. It's basically an ice cream stand called Jericho's or DJ's for those who used to come here many, many moons ago. And a kosher pizza joint that also, of course, has a sushi window <laughs> and has a separate meat kitchen for the Golan Heights uh, skewered
2: meat dishes that they serve and aritas. Right. And American Italian ices. I think it speaks to, you know, how all people kosher or not just crave the foods of the world. You know, generally, when I'm in the United States, I make it a rule not to eat a lot of Israeli food. Um, and when you live in Israel, you realize that, you know, Israelis are craving the flavors of the world. So, you know, yes, they eat gallons of tahina per person in Israel every year and fresh salad every day and all the things that we eat but they also crave sushi and Thai food and Mexican. Mexican food and hamburgers and Italian food you know and so you know I think people have an idea that Israel is just shawarma hummus and falafel or even modern israeli food but really it has a very varied and and ever growing and sort of continuously Evolving food scene that is more global than ever, actually. And I think that those influences are going to come back in and even further influence Israeli cuisine itself. Well said. Thank you, Adina Sussman, for
1: being with us at the Times Hotel.
2: My pleasure.
1: See you soon, listeners, and we'll be back on Sunday with another daily briefing. In the meantime, happy listening and have a Shabbat Shalom and a great weekend.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Times Will Tell from the Times of Israel. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein. Please subscribe
1: wherever you find your podcasts and check out our daily briefing news show every Sunday through Thursday.
0: Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. Until next week. Shalom.